Thanks, John. Um, I, I thought it was funny. I was out of town when we put together the year-end gift. I gave some direction, but not a, not a ton this year. And um, I, I didn't realize they had put in a percentage of the overage still going to staff and missionaries. So this is the first year in High Point Church history where an unlimited amount of Christmas bonus could go to the staff and missionaries. So if you really, if you wanted to bless the staff a lot more than any other year, if you gave like a million dollars to this, to the year in gift, like Nicole would get like $30,000 as her staff bonus this year. So that's kind of interesting. Okay. Um, um, so, uh, so yeah, I hope I still know how to do the preaching thing. I haven't done it for three weeks. Um, I've been in Colorado unsuccessfully hunting, but having a great time in the beauty of God's creation. And then I was with my in-laws the third week for Thanksgiving, which wasn't the same as the two weeks before that. But it was an adventure, you know? So um, last week, Devin started this series. This is the first sermon, actually. I'm actually really excited about this era. Maybe not about the sermon. This is the first series where I'm preaching material I didn't prepare. Like, I prepared the sermon, but Devin came up with the ideas for the series and, like, kind of what we're going to say each week. And that's—I used to do that when I was an associate pastor. It was one of my favorite things to do, to tell a senior pastor what to say. And uh, now here we are. Devin, here we are. I'm like a grown-up senior pastor. I have an associate pastor giving me ideas. Okay. Um, Last week, Devin talked about how fundamental to Advent is Advent is a fast— um, you're like, well, when do we get to feast? The only thing we ever celebrate in the church calendar here at High Point is Advent and Lent. Those are both fasts. This is true. Um, eat Christmas Tide, which is supposed to be the feast of Christmas, is the 12 days of Christmas. You remember that song? 12 days—I can't sing very well. Okay, so, th- so what's supposed to happen is after the 40 days of Advent, it's supposed to be the 12 days of Christmas, right, which is the feast, which starts another feast, the Feast of Epiphany. So you get like multiple feasts before then you get the fast of Lent and then the 40-day feast of Easter, right? Instead, we do like 40 days of solemn Advent, or, or like, and then it's like one day of Christmas and dismount, right? And then we do Lent, and then it's like one day of Easter, and then it's like, okay, when the fast. So we're still figuring out how to have fun. We know how to be sad, but we're, we're working on that second thing. Okay, so Devin said last week, focusing on Abraham, how Abraham points forward as somebody who's received a promise— but their, their main work is waiting. They have to wait for the promise, and they can't really do anything to speed it up. They can't make it happen. Does that make sense? And there's a certain sense in which the nature of Christian spirituality and, and all, hu- all good spirituality that is, that is rooted in God being sovereign over all things is that we are under his sovereignty, therefore under his timing, therefore subject to waiting, right? And it says in the book of Hebrews, in the, the chapter 11 on faithfulness and like wh- what it looks like to really have faith, that Abraham is like the, the archetype of that because that dude waited. I mean, he was promised a child and he waited until like he, they were already infertile. And then, I mean, they waited, God waited until they were like a hundred years old, which is not generally what you want to do fertility-wise. Just for those of you dating and getting married, that's not standard practice. You know, it's kind of sooner the better. So, um, so the question then is, following up on this, is, okay, if that's the case, that part of being a, peop- a person of the promise is that there's waiting involved, an unknown amount of waiting, probably more waiting than you think is reasonable in the purposes and timing of God, what do we do while we wait? Are we just to be idle? Or, and the answer is no. We're supposed to work while we wait, 
right? There's stuff to do. I mean, Jesus said, I'm working. He says on the Sabbath, the Sabbath, and my father is always working. So God isn't waiting, right? We are waiting for God to fulfill his promises. It's not like God is sitting around and like when he gets through like binge watching the second season of whatever the cool show is now, then he's going to like get to the second advent. That's not what's happening. God is working all the time. It's not like nothing is happening while we're waiting. And not only is nothing happening with God, things are supposed to be happening with us. We've been given something to do. We have a commission or a mission of what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to make Christ known. We're supposed to make Christ known with how we live. We're supposed to bring, bring flourishing to the places where it exists. We're supposed to repent of our sins. We're supposed to learn how to love one another. We're supposed to be prepared in our souls by the work of the Spirit for eternity. There's a lot to be done, right? Now, so why are we reading stories about Pharaoh enslaving um, uh, the Jews and um, Herod killing the innocent children of Bethlehem and so on. Why is that the scriptures for this morning? Other than that they're the most encouraging Christmas season passages. And the answer is, is that we are working while we're waiting. But in order to be Christians and to grow as believers, one of the things we have to prepare ourselves for is that we work in a hostile work environment. As, as people who belong to the promise of God and trying to live out and wait in the promises of God working in the ways he's called us to, we live in a hostile work environment. We're always going to live in a hostile work environment. We've always lived in a hostile work environment. There's never been a people of God that didn't live in a hostile work environment. That is, to put it um, straightforwardly, persecution or being attacked or facing hostility because we belong to the people of God is fundamental, normal, and endemic to what it means to belong to God, and it's fundamentally produced by the work God is doing, and it's fundamentally produced by the work we're doing while we wait. Okay, so persecution is God's work in the waiting. Now, is makes it's anyway, it's like it's the only thing. It's not the only thing. God's doing lots of things, but one of the things God is working while we're waiting is this dynamic where the people of the promise are confronting the people who have not yet become people of the promise, and it creates a problem and tension and difficulty. It creates a moment of decision. It creates conflict, which sometimes creates hostility. It, it creates a drama. And that drama and how God works in that drama to redeem people and to invite people to himself and to restore people and to save people and to help people and to shape us as believers, all of that is happening through the mission he's given us, the conflict it creates, and the persecution that necessarily, or I should say predictably, ensues. Okay, now I'm going to break this down to a couple of parts. You can guess how many. The first is that persecution is assured by the mission. Persecution is assured by the mission. The mission of Jesus, and then the mission he gave to us. If we actually do the mission Jesus gave us, persecution is assured by that mission. Some people think that it doesn't have to be. Right? That if we're godly enough, if we're good enough, then the sins that the church has done that really makes people angry won't be there, and then people won't be upset at us, or there won't be conflict, and that's not true. You can't be good enough. Or they think if maybe if we're sophisticated enough, maybe if we're like, we're well-read enough, and we're politically correct enough, and like we, we learn the new nomenclature and vocabularies, if we, if we understand better the dynamics of culture, if we contextualize properly and do all these sorts of things, and if we do it right for not just innocent as dove, but truly true to serpents, as Jesus said, then we won't face persecution. Right? Because isn't it oftentimes our ignorance and our clumsiness that causes us to be misunderstood? Because isn't the message of the gospel a gospel of love? Why would that make anybody angry? Right? And the answer is that doesn't work. Now, I'm not saying that certain kinds of sophistication can't be really helpful. 
and that ignorant church actions of the people of the church sometimes do create anger that's unnecessary. But there's no way to be sophisticated enough to make persecution not assured. Um, why is that? The straightforward answer is, is that persecution is assured because the gospel is seen as a threat, and the reason it's seen as a threat is because it is a threat. The gospel is the message that there are two kingdoms clashing with one another, right? How does Psalm 2 start? Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot and scheme and take their stand against God and his anointed one, right? The, the argument of Psalm 2 is, is that God rules all things. He is the king and everything is his rightful kingdom. And all that is not acting like it's rightly subjected to and obeying and loving God and his beautiful goodness and justice is standing against it and raging against it. And in the midst of that raging, God mercifully gives a peaceful ambassadors and emissaries to tell people peacefully that they are at war with God and they're not going to win. That they're engaging on the wrong side of a clash of kingdoms that will lead to the disaster for them and all that they love and everything that they've done and everything that they've become and they can be rescued from that but only if they first recognize that they are on the wrong side of a clash of kingdoms. And so it's a terrifying personal indictment, right? The gospel seeks to relieve it by offering salvation and peace and reconciliation with God and an eternity with him and all those things. But it starts with the fact that you're wrong, right? And the thing is, is that, like, therefore, God's people stand for that threat. We carry that message. We offer that indictment, sometimes actively by preaching the gospel and telling people, sometimes just our existence as the people of the promise. We just live around people and we live really different from them. Like when you, you don't have to say, have you ever had somebody tell you that you're really judgmental and you've never said a word about their lifestyle? Right? You just do your thing. You say what you believe in. You never say a negative word to them. And they're like, I, I feel like you've been judging me for years. Right? And you're like, I, I mean, there have been times in here, but now I don't want to— the, the point is, is that like sometimes just the presence of the alternative that you're trying to avoid threatens you. I mean, I, I'm convinced that though everybody in the church should be involved in the proclamation of the gospel, we should all just tell the truth about Jesus wherever we go the best we can, even if we said nothing. But we lived in a godly way, as godly as we could possibly be, in repentance and faith, in reconciliation, in pursuing the good, in knowing the mind of Christ, in keeping in step with the Spirit, in living out of sacrificial love everywhere that we went. We said nothing about Jesus. There would still be persecution. Because the presence of the people of God is a little outpost of ambassadors of the kingdom of which the nations rage against. Sometimes not intentionally, sometimes passively, sometimes ignorantly. Not, it's not like every person on planet Earth knows they're raging against the kingdom of God. Remember, Romans says that we're truth suppressors. We suppress the truth not just for other people, but mainly for ourselves. Most people are utterly, consciously unaware that they are in a clash of kingdoms and raging against the anointed one. It's one of the reasons why when you tell them, they get so angry, right? Um, but it, I think it's important for us to be understanding in the sense that we need to recognize that when we, we live out, or especially we speak about the gospel and people act threatened by it, 
it, it's not like they're being crazy. They're responding just as you would expect a human being would respond. For example, um, imagine you worked in an office, and there were a bunch of people who worked in an office, and you had a boss, and it wasn't a very good boss, but he wasn't a super terrible boss. Some people liked him. Some people um, were sycophantic and hoping he'd promote them, so they liked him. Um, other people didn't like him, but they were hoping to be the boss when he got thrown out. And, and, then, and then you just said, um, yeah, I'm just waiting and hoping for the better boss to come. I'm just, I'm, I, I, like, like, I get through the day believing and knowing a better boss is coming, right? Imagine how the boss would react right? One, you're insinuating he's inadequate, right? He's not a good boss, right? And if you say a better and, like you said, a, a good and just boss was coming, you'd be like, so you think I'm unjust, and you think I'm bad, right? I mean, think how that boss might react if somehow you knew in some assured way that some better boss was coming. Well, how soon? He's going to supplant me, and I'm going to lose my job, and what would the other people think? Because you're like stirring up the pot at the office. Now the boss is upset. Now he's going around and yelling at cats, you know? Like, and then, like, the people are like, well, wait, you know a better boss is coming? I was hoping to be the boss when this guy gets out here. Now the people who don't even like the boss don't like you because the better boss you're hoping for isn't them, probably. Like, everybody—and you're just—and you just, like, you just happen to know that upper management has chosen a much better boss, and he's coming, and that's why you haven't quit. Because you were going to quit, and management came to you and said, listen, we actually really like you as an employee. Please stay. We actually have another boss coming. We're, we're like, already working on the paperwork for this other guy in a severance package. Just hang on right? And nobody else knows that, right? When, when we are the people of the promise, and we live it out, and we're actually working, not just waiting, what that's going to produce is people are going to respond as though we've threatened them, and the reason is, is because we have. We, we, we are threatening because we're bringing forward something that the human heart that isn't ordered towards God naturally represses. And whenever somebody represses something, and then you force them to face it— Listen, why, why, do, why do human minds and hearts psychologically repress things? Why do we do that? Why do we repress traumas? Why do we disassociate and do those sorts of things, and hide things, and for, try to forget things we don't want to remember? Either because of damaging things that happen to us, or damaging things to other people that we don't want to hold on our conscious, conscience. Why do our minds suppress those things, right? Because we don't want to deal with them. <laughs> we don't want to face them. We don't want them shouting in our ears emotionally all the time. We got rid of them for a reason. And whenever anybody comes along and says, Hey, look at this. You lost this. I found it for you. <laughs> people don't say, Oh, thank you. Right? And because of that, when you recognize that the people of the promise are an inherent threat to those who have not yet entered into the people of the promise— then you, we should expect people to act like threatened creatures act. Do you understand? It's not weird. It's not strange. It's not abnormal. When people respond like they're threatened, when they feel threatened, right? Dogs bite children. People will attack you and us. And that's always happened. I mean, just think about the history of the scriptures, right? Like literally the next thing that happens after Adam and Eve sin is what? What's the next story? A brother kills his brother out of resentment over his brother's godliness. That's what happens. He kills him. His own brother. You see where the trajectory of this story is going? <laughs> By the time you get to Egypt, right? 
the, the, the Jews are multiplying. They have, a, they have a good relationship with Egypt, right? Joseph was like the secondary prime minister. He saved them from massive famine. He's a hero in their recent nation, his, national history. He'd be, I mean, he'd be, like, he'd be like Martin Luther King in America. He'd be like, like a recent past, like remembered, but not personally known by a lot of the younger people, right? Like kind of figure. And then there's a fear. Of, I don't really care. These people are a socio-political economic problem, and I need to do something to fix this. Why? Because he feels threatened by them, right? Same thing with Herod. Why does Herod the Great try to kill, kill all these children in the region of Bethlehem? Because he's threatened, right? It's not a rational behavior. He could have rounded up all the boys, two and younger, interviewed all the parents, tried to figure out who it was, narrowed it down a little bit before he killed a dozen kids, and said, just, just go kill them all. Right? Similarly, same thing with Jesus, right? Like, I mean, think about this. Jesus was plenty good and plenty sophisticated to explain the truth of God's kingdom and the clash of kingdoms the way it should be explained, right? That's why he lived to a ripe old age. Because he did a great job. If he was here in Madison today, like, think about this. If he was here in Madison today, imagine that God made the intertestamental period 2,400 years instead of 400 years. And Jesus was born in Stoughton, in a manger, okay? And he came to Madison to preach the gospel, to tell people about the coming of the Messiah and what it meant to live in the kingdom of God, right? We, of course, we would all follow him and love him and like treat him great and like put him on radio shows and stuff. And he'd be like well known for everybody loving him. We'd probably make him the governor, right? It's ridiculous. Our sophistication means nothing. We would respond like dogs to him, threatened. Right? And when Jesus hands off his mission and his character to his people and say, go and do greater things than I have done, you'll heal the dead, you'll raise the dead, you'll heal the sick, you'll preach the gospel, you'll, you'll face kings and magistrates, you'll be bit by snakes and not die. Like, like you're, gonna, you're gonna go out and you're gonna spread millions of you through the earth and do what I can't do as a single stationary human being, but the Holy Spirit will be with you and you'll do amazing things. Um, he didn't say, but they're gonna treat you great. Right? Because of that, it's important to recognize that sometimes what people will say is this. You know, Christians in that place in the world aren't being mistreated because they're Christians. They're being mistreated because of X, which is not because they're Christians, right? So in China, for example, Christians are being terribly mistreated, right? And the government would not say, well, we, well we're doing it because we're Christians. We hate Christians. There's a class of kingdoms, haven't you heard? And we're raging against God and his anointed. Right? The, 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 the Chinese Communist Party doesn't even know they're doing that. They just know they're in charge. And Christians have a higher authority than the party. And that is unacceptable. And they have a different morality than the party. They say righteousness and justice are something different than the party says. That is unacceptable. Right? Like, like they say, for example, putting a million plus Uyghurs in concentration camps and killing untold numbers of them is wrong. It's not okay to culturally structure a nation for future success. And Christians will never back down on that. And they are a threat. They're a threat. They can't be anything but a threat. 
right? And that's, some version of that is true everywhere. Christians in Iran don't uphold Islam. But it, Muslims in Iran who are in charge won't say, we're killing them because they're Christians. We're imprisoning them because they're Christians. We're imprisoning them because Allah rules and these people have apostated from the truth. That is, they are raging against our nation. The nation that I am raging for. Right? Now, this has always been true, and it's true everywhere. It's the same dynamic. And so we shouldn't think that if people mistreat us, and they say it's not because we're believers, it's this other thing that they claim is rational, that that is valid. Now, sometimes it's valid. There are Christians that do a lot of stupid things that encourage the reproach of others, and, we, and when we do that, we kind of deserve it, right? But what we should also recognize is that rational threats from other people often come from very irrational explanations and disproportionate attacks. And this is what you see in the book of Exodus, right? So why is, the, why is Pharaoh so upset about the Jews? I mean, these peoples are friends. They're bound together by a common history, by a common success and a great moment of terror. They have every reason to be in good fellowship with one another. They live different lifestyles, right? Shepherds and Egyptians in an agrarian cleaner lifestyle or whatever. Like, there are some differences, but there's no reason why these two shouldn't be allies together. So why is Pharaoh so upset? Why is he so concerned, right? If they don't like him, he's the Pharaoh. It's his fault. <laughs> like, he could do all kinds of things to have good relationships with the Jews. He just didn't want to. And so he sees them then as alienated from him because he's alienated them from him. And so then he concocts in his mind that what they're going to do is join with one of his enemies and fight against him. He has no evidence for that. He has no reason to believe it. He's just irrationally assuming the worst case scenario. And then he makes up in his mind what has to be done. And then he goes through a progression of ever-increasing oppressions to try to destroy God's people. Same thing with Herod. Herod, Herod isn't thinking through what he's doing, he's not thinking, you know, what's the rational thing to do? Well, if there is a star from the east, and people have come from Iran <laughs> to worship the king of kings, the, the one who is king over the Jews, if that's true and God providentially exists, does it make sense that you can send some soldiers to Bethlehem to kill some children and that that's going to work it all out? No, it doesn't make any sense at all. All he knows reactively is that I'm in charge here, and somebody who supposedly could be a rival to me or my heirs is, exists. They need to die. And so he sends people to kill him. It's not rational. And he's not saying, this child is a, is a child of the promise, therefore I'm going to kill him. That's not his logic. His logic is, this, these people threaten me. They must go. Right? So we shouldn't think, as Christians, you should never be drawn into this idea that um, because somebody says they're not persecuting God's people because they're God's people, doesn't mean that's true. Nobody ever persecutes God's people and say, the reason I'm persecuting you is that you belong to the true God. You follow him in the right way. You are pursuing his real godliness. You stand for actual justice and righteousness. You will believe in the truth and not the lies I tell you to believe. And you threaten me and therefore I'm coming for you. Nobody's ever going to say that. But that's always how it's going to be, right? 
And, and the level or intensity of the persecution doesn't really um, change that dynamic. It changes how painful it is, and it changes the kind of solidarity we should have with those suffering from more intense versions of it. But we shouldn't pretend that the intensity is what makes the dynamic, right? So there's, there's at least four levels that you see all throughout the world, all throughout the history of the Christian church, and they're all actual forms of persecution because they have a negative effect on the people of God and the expression of the gospel in whatever culture. One is just separation, and this is like a culturally enforced shame where people just say, I'm going to separate away from you. I'm going to sort of exclude you from the clique. You're not going to be one of the cool people, um, right? The, listen, you might think, well, that's not a very, very hard form of persecution. Listen, it's plenty to destroy the lives of most teenagers. The, the unenforced, um, unwritten effects that teenagers will give to other ones or, or school cultures will give to children who really live for the gospel is enough to either significantly emotionally harm them or cause them to walk away from the faith because they just don't want to be rejected like that. Because they're in—psychologically, they're in a stage of life where the acceptance of peers— is an acceptance of people who are not their family is the most important thing in their life. So what are, what are you and I gonna, supposed to do about that? Well, when we could get involved in the school, we could try to show where that exists. The other thing is, is that's why all of us, other adults, are so important in the lives of teenagers in the church. Because they need us to say, um, I was you once. Don't compromise your character your connection to the truth, your honesty with yourself and with God to fit into the world. The nations will always rage, rage against God's anointed. Don't throw yourself in with that. Be what light you can, but don't let them break you. You can stand unbroken in that place, right? The second is caricature. That's when after people separate, then they, then they focus on the thing about you that they don't like the most. There's no empathy anymore because they're not close enough to you to look you in the eye. And so people start then gossiping and slandering. And th I mean, think cable news and, um, and social media, where there's like an informal semi-campaign where attacking the other person's inherent humanity is pretty normal, right? It's a little bit more severe. And then repression, which is basically um, you do everything you can to keep the thing from growing, growing or flourishing. You, you're basically choking and starving it. You're not literally frontally attacking it and seeking to destroy it with force, but you're, you're working the mark. You're marginalizing them. You're taking away what nourishes them. You're minimizing their standing. Everything that this other group does, you're trying to make it cost more than normal. Everything's a cost. Everything they do costs them more. So that proportions of them would either not flourish or would just give up, or they'd come over to your side. And then last is direct oppression, where you directly attack, plunder, scatter, or destroy a weaker adversary with impunity, right? You just—this is happening in China right now, right? So, um, the version of this that some of you are either are or are going to face in Madison, and the version of this that our brothers and sisters in Christ in China or Iran are facing is different. It's different. Thank God, in some ways, for us. But not thank God for them, right? Unless we realize the purpose and use— that God makes of it, which I'll get to in just a second. The point is, is that um, when you face these earlier versions, see, and this is, okay, I'm gonna bring this up. This is a, a true conflict in this church, okay? It's a true conflict we have in this church. Here's why. Some younger Christians, especially if they're also white 
and they went to university in the last 240 years, let's say. Um, just, they, they tend to come with highly, and I, I don't want to say indoctrinated in the negative sense, but highly versed in the doctrines of um, privileges that have existed in America, especially as it's taught within certain sectors of theories for white people. And so they think of themselves as both privileged as a particular kind of educated person from a particular class, from a particular ethnicity. And so when I say in Madison, the church experiences persecution, the natural emotional visceral reaction that they have, that feels like an intellectual thought is, bah, that's bull. We've been so, the church in America, especially controlled by white people, has been so privileged. We've been in the privileged classes. The idea that we're experiencing persecution, that's just a victim mentality. That's, that's just a persecution complex you're inventing, right? Which I think is profoundly naive. But also, I get where they're coming from, right? Similarly, though, other people, people who tend to be more conservative, tend to see these dynamics very closely. They, send, they, they see a civilizational idea that they, they live for because they imagine the America that they grew up in as a, as a, not a Christian nation, but a nation in which Christian ethics and values and beliefs about human morality were fundamentally important. And they see that fundamentally eroding, and they see people standing up for it being personally attacked, both politically and religiously. And they're like, don't you idiots see what's happening here? And you see it creates a conflict because one group is like, look, we're being persecuted. People, wake up. We need to—and like this other group is like, I can't distinguish that from standing up for the gospel and white supremacy in my mind, like the way I think about this. So one group in the church, in this church, will go, don't you guys see? Like persecution is happening right now. It's increasing. We're all ready to repression. Christians are already being marginalized at work, marginalized in academics, marginalized in public things. This, like, this is happening right now, right here. And if you don't stand up right now, it's going to be a problem. By the time you young people wake up, it's going to be over, right? And the young people, generally speaking, it goes by age. It's not always that way. Are like, no, we've got to fix all these privileges stuff. And like white people that make up most of these churches that are so concerned about this are part of these people that don't want the things that need to change so that everybody can have an equitable relationship to our society. And basically, if we react the way you want us to, it will be indistinguishable from what other people call white supremacy. Do you see the problem here? Both people are trying to get at something in some ways that's good, but it's messing with the way we're looking at it. The answer is, is that you're both right. Like the problem with conflict is, is not usually everybody's wrong. It's like everybody's right about something. Same thing with like politics right now. All the four political views in America. The problem is they're all right. They're all right about some things. Right? And we're so allergic to the other views, we can't actually put them together in some kind of like unified thing. We're just too afraid to do it. But same thing with this persecution thing. Like, persecution as biblically ordered and described is happening in Madison in pointed, specific, direct ways, and it is being done under the auspices of undoing white supremacy. Like, those are combined. Right? Now, is American Christianity complicit like, do, they, do we deserve it? Because what, did white American Christianity not stand enough against racial problems in America? So, so we got lumped in with exactly the thing this other group is trying to get rid of. I don't know the answer to that in proportion. I was reading Benjamin Mays' autobiography last night where he talks about, like, working for decades before the 60s to try to get churches to stop segregating all over America. Just working, just, just feeling like a voice crying out in the wilderness. Like, don't you guys see we cannot segregate churches? Don't you guys see we cannot segregate churches? Don't you guys see we cannot— And just like, 
spent his whole life doing it. Like people just were like, yeah, this is great. And they'd clap at the national conferences and then they'd go home and segregate their churches. You know what I mean? So when this group of younger people are like, hey, there's this thing we're breaking up and like the church is like ambiguously related to it. Like I get that. And so we're gonna have to like be big people because we're gonna have to be like, okay, we gotta figure out whatever's true about this while also being able to call an apple an apple when it comes to how Christians are being treated culturally because they're standing up for certain Christian things that people publicly associate with other things. Like Christian morality, like the morality that an individual person should embrace in the Bible is part of what's lumped in with cultural explanations of what is called white supremacy. Do you understand that? It's like a real thing. They can't, you can't give up biblical morality in order to not be either a white supremacist or being called one, right? And so you gotta like figure out the difference. Does that make sense? And like, it's like, that's not easy, but I'm just saying, like I sit down with people in this, in this church and some people say, Nick, don't you see what's happening to us in this culture? Don't you think you should say more against it? Don't you think we need to stand up? Don't you think we should protest? And I'm like, maybe. And then other people are like, Nick, don't you see that like, we're just like, we're engaging in question begging and like, when we've had privilege for decades. Don't you think we should be giving ground to people in some of these areas? And I'm like, yes, in certain areas and not others. Just like in this one, yes, in certain areas and not others. That's why in Hebrews, the author can say, you guys, I've been preaching to you for long enough that you should be able to take more than milk, but you should be eating solid food. We should be able to go on to talk about more than just the resurrection and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we should be able to talk about the deeper things of righteousness. But the more we're impacted by our culture that isn't interested in that because it's interested in raging against the anointed one without even knowing about it, it has no deep, abiding, self-repenting concern in getting at the greatest and deepest truth about how these things must come together. But we must be! All right, sorry, that was not planned. All right, um, but it's, I feel like it's really real, okay? So write down these passages. These are the places where the Apostle Paul and Peter explicitly talk about what our life is supposed to look like when we face persecution. It's basically godliness, okay? I'll, spoiler, right? So the applications of this are, one, persecution is to be expected. Two, you cannot be good enough to escape it. Three, you cannot be sophisticated enough to escape it. And four, you can be like Jesus. Okay? Now, instead of getting the other two points um, that I had prepared, let me—here's what I want to end with. Uh, Hebrews 12 says that we're supposed to receive all hardship as discipline. In the context of Hebrews 12, discipline does not have a negative corrective connotation. It has a connotation of training. In fact, the word training is used later in the passage. We have to be trained. And we're supposed to receive all hardship, whether it's persecution or cancer, as a hardship that God will utilize in his providence to train us when we combine it with faith. Now, persecution is special because it— forces us to face things that just normal suffering doesn't. Like, who are you loyal to? I mean, the most, the most fundamental way to be damned is not to say, I follow Satan rather than God. That's not what happens. Worldliness over a very long period of time in an incredibly gradual way 
just makes us a little bit more worldling every day. Right? One of the glories of persecution is somebody puts a metaphorical or literal knife in your face and says, there's two sides you can be a part of. Which side are you on? And that brings a sobriety that in some ways only persecution can bring. Which side am I on? Who do I belong to? What is my identity? What do I believe in? What is my life for? What do I believe will be happening a thousand years from now? Or 50,000 years from now? Right? And whether you're facing that as peer pressure in high school or at work, or whether you're being put in a gulag, or facing a concentration camp, or facing the destruction of your public character by the accumulation of data by a regime that decides whether you're a good or bad person, you can or cannot rent a car based on whether or not you will go to church or associate with other Christian, known Christians. That's all a spectrum of intensity, but it has the same effect. It means the same thing. And for all the negative things that it can do, those negative things produce all kinds of positive things. Solidarity with others who are suffering. Humility and having the things you think your life is really about being torn away from you. The love of God rather than the love of this world. Like, I could go on a, a very long list. But one of the things that is directly and specifically beautiful is, it is through persecution that you have the opportunity and the possibility of attaining to the greatest spiritual attainment and emulating the greatest spiritual being. And without it, I don't know that it can ever happen. Right? You can emulate the greatest spiritual being, that is Jesus the Christ, God, him, God himself incarnate, who is the exact representation of the Father. Right? He was abused. The nations raged against him. He was mistreated, and he confessed God. And he was, the Bible says in some mysterious way, made perfect as our Savior through suffering. He was already perfect, but he was made perfect as our Savior because we knew he would face anything for us to save us right? And that has the potential to us in desiring to be like him, being willing to face anything to be faithfully God's. You can actually be like Christ, and you are never more like Christ when you face suffering in his name, which can lead to the greatest spiritual attainment. What, like, what do you think is the greatest spiritual attainment? I mean, you might be like, well, technically, Nick, it's glorification. Like, if we make it to glorification, that's the greatest spiritual attainment. Okay, think developmentally. Developmentally, what is the greatest spiritual attainment? What would be the highest level of Christ-likeness anybody could attain actively in this life before glorification? Right? And I would argue, if I had more time, being able to love your enemy when they're killing you. Now, in order for you to practically do that as a lab, rather than just a lecture, somebody has to kill you. Do you understand? I wish there was some way to help you feel the gravity of what I'm saying right now. Like, we're just going, oh, this is a fun little sermon. It's Advent. Oh, somebody's going to kill us. Like, do, you, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, having your life ripped away from you could be the greatest blessing in the history. Let I me mean, think about this. Have you ever read the book of Revelation? If you have, in the early chapters— there is a special place for a special group of people at the throne of God. Who is it? It's the martyrs. There is something desirous about being in that number to a believer. 
not because we want to die. It's not because we like want to suffer. It's because those people were so faithful to the final degree, the most like Jesus a human person could ever be, attaining to the highest spiritual attainment, and they become our heroes forever. And that can only happen when the nations come for you. When you face the irrational reactions of them feeling threatened by the true threat of the gospel, as you offered out as a peacemaker, an ambassador who offers them relief from that threat forever. In the name of the love of God, not only acting dutifully and disciplined for the love of God, but feeling it. Feeling a love for the one who would harm you intentionally because they feel threatened by you. And to be so wise in your heart, so prepared in your mind that when you see them act, you see somebody acting out of hurt and feeling threatened even in their immorality. And that you have even more compassion for them in receiving whatever recriminations they offer. Because this is what Jesus did for you. This is what he did for us. This is what he continues to do for his disobedient children. This is what he continually offers through the ages. This is what we have been given as our mission. This is the identity that we carry. This is the greatest dignity that any image-bearing creature can bear. We're waiting, but we're working. And for the foreseeable future, we will be working in a hostile work environment. And the glories and the beauties of that we have not yet even hardly begun to explore. Is your greatest desire to be spared persecution? Is it? And is that what you want your greatest spiritual desire to be? Sorry, God. I know this is such a peppy sermon that everybody is just going to be wanting pastries. Um, but I, I pray that you would bring home to us the reality of what it meant for Herod to rage and for Pharaoh to rage against the people. Help us to know that even among um, the nations that rage, there's always going to be Pharaoh's daughters. That when they look upon another human being, you have worked in them and their humanity still shines forth in empathetic love and, and, and will not rage like the nations. And um, we know that you are acting in your providence, but we pray that you'd help us to be um, martyrs in our minds, prepared for actions, not people of a victim mentality, not people of a persecution complex, but mentally prepared, prepared in our hearts for persecution so that we would be prepared for everything. I, I pray that you would help me and all of us to be so prepared to die that we can speak to our spouses kindly when they're angry at us, or our children when they're being defensive, or in whatever lesser circumstance we face the pain of facing and killing our own flesh. And Holy Spirit, we, we beg for your presence and your strengthening and your empowerment because we recognize that to be like Jesus is a supernatural task. He was, he was the God-man, and he was filled and baptized in your spirit. He was, he walked in step with the spirit, and he he pursued the, the will of his Father. And we pray that you would so spiritually empower us and so fill us with the mind of Christ that we could do what we see you doing and that we would walk and be able to act in the power of the Spirit. We pray that as we do it, you would actually do among the nations who rage even greater things than Jesus. 
healing the sick, raising the dead, persuading unbelieving people to embrace you, and to shed abroad in people's hearts your love so that they could be transformed. We pray in Jesus' name.